Good evening. Thanks for joining us here on Nighttime. This is Dave Wager, your host. And for the next half hour, I hope that we can say some things that will help you put perspective in life. You got to remember, God is older than you and smarter than you and loves you. You can trust him. Of course, if you're ignoring God, that's not very helpful. But if you're enjoying him today and loving him, there's hope for you. Tonight, I'd like to talk on Isaiah 45 and read some of the passage and just comment about it as we read God's word. The first verse says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to lose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. That's pretty interesting. As you think of God speaking, he's basically saying to someone named Cyrus, I'm going to give you something. I am God, and the reason I give you something is so that you might be able to tell other people that I am God, that I might be able to show myself through you. I began thinking, it doesn't really matter who you are. In the end, God is going to demonstrate the fact that he's God. And you're either going to be a part of that, exalting him as the rest of the world and nation would be, or you'll be a part of those who will be forgotten forever. Those who rejected the only one that can give life, eternal life, power, the only one that can grant forgiveness. Cyrus could have been a real character and he could have been somebody that is a Greek legend. To the Greek literature, Cyrus was the prince preeminent kind of set forth as a model for education in childhood, self-restraint in youth, just and powerful in government and in manhood. Most of what we read of him is found in Zephon's, I don't even know if I pronounced this right, Cyclopedia. And it's, of course, more on the romantic side. But the very fact that, like our own King Arthur, Cyrus was used as a mirror to flash great ideals down the ages. And he proves that there was in him a native brilliance and width of surface, as well as a fortunate eminence of his position. He owed much to the virtue of his race. This according to Professor Smith,
really, if you're going to listen to God, then God will use you to show the world who he is. And you will get great satisfaction and privilege from that. But if you choose not to listen to God, it could be that God uses you anyway to show the world who he is through you. There is value in all examples, both good and bad. And God is going to win this in the end. Those who refuse to admit that there is a God or they live their lives as if there isn't one, one day they'll be very sorry that they lived that way. Verse 4, it says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Cyrus, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you, willing or not, to demonstrate something that I need to demonstrate. It seems to me that we should position ourselves so that if God chooses to use us for something and it is his choice, that we would gain some benefit from it. In verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Interesting, I am the Lord, there is no other. He identified himself as the God of Jacob, who was his servant. And by the way, being a servant is significant because we are not God, we are servants of God. And those who are servants of God are used of God and benefit from being used of God. Oh, I'm not saying that servants' lives are easy. In fact, I think that servants' lives can be very tough. They can be very laborious. They can be agonizing at times. But those that God chose to use through history were known as his servants, his servant Jacob, his servant Moses, his servant fill-in-the-blank throughout history. How scriptures referred to people that were doing what they should be as God's servant. I wonder if God would look down upon me tonight and call me his servant. Or if I have not elevated my behavior to that status yet. I wonder how many of us in the modern church in America would like to identify ourselves as servants of God. What does a servant do? Well, for those of us that live in America, I think we have to guess at what they do. Or we have to read about what they did. Because that's not our culture, that's not how we operate. However, it seems to me that those that were good servants would 
understand the desires and the will of the master and position themselves to make sure that that desire and will were accomplished. They would be waiting for the orders that the master would give and they would fulfill the orders unquestionably. They would realize that everything that they have and everything that they ever could be will come from the master's hand. They have no worries of tomorrow because that's the master's worry. They have no worries of being provided for. They have no worries of health care. They have no concerns because God is a good master and he will provide their needs. Their job is to be a good servant. And he called Jacob his servant. And in verse 5, as he says, I am the Lord, I am the master, I am the only one there is, there are not two. Allah is not God, God is God, they're different. Right from the beginning, God was very plain in saying there's one God, not a God who's multiple gods, but one God. Some get confused with the Trinity, thinking there are three, but the three are one. They are exactly God, all of them. When Jesus spoke, he spoke exactly what God would speak. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he speaks exactly what God would say. When God speaks, he speaks exactly what the Holy Spirit or Jesus would say. They're one. And in fact, in John 17, we're encouraged in Jesus' prayer to be one as he is one with the Father. He was not one with the Father physically. But if you would listen to Jesus or you would see him act or see him work, he did exactly what God would do if he were in his position. He was one with the Father. And that was his prayer for us. In the fifth verse of Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. You can be upset with me for saying that there is one God and there is no other, but that's what the scriptures say. And that is what God has said and that is the way it is. You might say his name doesn't matter, but it does. Anything that diminishes the idea of a single, loving, powerful God is not a good thing. I have a wife and she has a name. And if you were to come to me and say, are you married? And I would say yes. And you were to ask me her name and I told you her name. And you say, well, it doesn't matter. I will call her Matilda. I would look at you and say, well, she's got a name and it's not Matilda. And he could say to me, well, you know what I mean. My wife's name, Matilda. And therefore, if I say Matilda, I'm referring to 
your wife or my wife or any wife. I would look at them and question their logic at that point. Because we give names to people so that we know who we're referring to. It is not uh, that I am saying that somebody is not referred to as Allah. What I'm saying is that Allah and God are not the same. There is only one God. He says that, not me. I'm just reading his word. And in the fifth verse, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then there's a comma, and it says, beside me, there is no God. One of the great tools that Satan tries to employ is the idea of confusion to people. If we can be confused as to who God is, then we can never know him. If we can believe that God is anybody you want him to be, then we can't know him. If we believe that God says what we want him to say, and we interpret it the ways that conveniently fit our lifestyle, then we're living in a fantasy world. God said, I am the Lord, and there is no other Beside me, there is no God. There's two, there's three commas there. There are three statements. They mirror each other. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. Anything that is good and powerful and right come from God, not from man. And it's important for us to grab that idea. The rest of verse 5 says this, I equip you, though you do not know me. Now put into the context of Cyrus, I equip you, even though you don't know me. The reason that you have success, regardless of why you think you have success, is because I have given you the tools to be successful. If you don't believe that, you'll learn that the hard way. There was a time where King Nebuchadnezzar would look over his kingdom and think, what a wonderful king I am. Before long, he was eating grass like a wild beast. He was foolish, for he thought that all of his accomplishments were due to his goodness and his ability and his brain and his superiority, when really God gave him all of those things and he never would acknowledge God, or he didn't at that time acknowledge God. You know, because we don't acknowledge God does not mean he doesn't exist. Because we don't thank him for what he has given us. Because we don't recognize the good and the gifts and the talents that he's given us and the position he's given us. 
doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Likewise, not every evil that happens in this world is something that we can blame God for. He's given man choice, and this choice is real, and as we make choices, there's consequences that go with those choices. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And in the sixth verse, he tells why he equips him. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I would think that this is rather clear in the scriptures, that God is making it clear that there's one God, one authority, one creator, one sustainer, not several. Certainly in Greek mythology and others, there are multiple gods for multiple reasons, and when you start to get into multiple gods for multiple reasons, there's all kinds of craziness that begins because it's not true. And once you get into lies, craziness is the only alternative. Satan loves to mess with this concept of a single God. He wants money to be our God. He wants fame, comfort, popularity. Oh yeah, those Ten Commandment things. You shall have no other gods before me. How easy it is for us to begin to worship a false god. Well, he equipped Cyrus, who didn't know him. He said, I am the Lord, there is no other, in verse 5, beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In the seventh verse, he goes on to talk about what he does as God to demonstrate the uniqueness, the holiness that he has. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He forms light. Light is what gives life to everything. It's interesting when you think about light, and light casts off something called ultraviolet. I was thinking about that, and I'm not a scientist by any means, but I was thinking about the idea of why would we call it ultraviolet, so I started to briefly look it up. Ultra, meaning at the end of the violet scale. It is such a color that it exists, but we don't see it. It's at the very end of the violet scale. It's ultraviolet. 
It's interesting that the life-giving light from the sun is something we don't really see on a regular basis. It's ultraviolet. I'm not really sure, but I was reading somewhere that bees can see the ultraviolet and somehow that helps them in the pollination process or something. I wouldn't doubt it. I don't see the ultraviolet rays, but the ultraviolet rays have a tremendous impact in the world, on the world, in all that we do. It's interesting how God made them ultraviolet. I kind of wonder if then everything around us is really violet in color, and I can't see it. Random thought. But if we have ultraviolet light, it must be. He said he created light. I form light in verse 7 and create darkness. Darkness is really just the absence of light. When light is not there, it's dark. There's no alternative. The only way to cure darkness is light. And God forms light, so the only way to cure the darkness in the world is to allow God into it. And God is light, therefore no darkness can live in his presence. There's a lot of ugly that grows in dark. I remember turning on a light in a motel room once and having the cockroaches scurry, they didn't like the light. If I'm afraid that there are bed bugs in a room that I'm in, not in my home, mind you, but when I travel, I turn on the lights and I leave them on because bed bugs don't like light. If I want to really see if a room is clean, I turn on bright lights. I was working in my basement and I had a room down there where I stored wood for over 30 years that I used in heating the house. I didn't care much about the room, honestly, because it was a place to throw wood. And any room that you threw wood in started to look like a wood storage room after a while, so trying to stop that would be futile. But when I decided to stop heating the house by wood and get the wood out and clean it up. And I put lights in that room. It was amazing, the dirt and the dust and the mold that was discovered from those pieces of wood. The light exposed a really ugly side and then I had a choice of what to do with the ugly. It wasn't that the ugly wasn't there before the light was put onto it. It was that the ugly was expected. It was normal. It was a part of heating the house with wood. And I only had one dim light bulb in that room, so I didn't really have to deal with noticing how bad it was. 
God's word is like a lamp. It's a lamp unto my feet. It helps guide me. It shows the ugly side of life, and I need to acknowledge the ugly side because once I do that, I can make a plan to clean that up. But I need light and lots of it. The more light, the better, because if the room is clean under bright light, it's clean. If it's clean only when it's dark, it's not clean. I remember I was with a friend once in a restaurant and we had been traveling and doing some speaking and we liked finding little restaurants off the main trail to eat at. And we found this restaurant and went in and sat down and ordered. And as we were waiting for our food, I noticed something because I dropped something on the floor and I told my friend, look at the carpet. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, it's, so what color do you think it is? He said, well, it's kind of a brownish black kind of carpet. I said, turn your phone light on and look under the table. It was a bright red carpet under the table. You could see the grease and the dirt and the grime that had been built into the carpet that was in between the tables where the servers would serve the food and you would walk to your table. We got a chuckle out of it thinking, I wonder how many restaurants are this way and realized that the restaurant was very dimly lit so that you wouldn't notice that. Honestly, I began to get the creeps a little as I sat there wondering how much the lights were hiding or the lack of light was hiding. You know, that happens in our lives as well. Just because you don't see the dirty carpet runner doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It does. And everything that's growing in that carpet and everything that's there is there. The light just exposes it. And once you get it exposed, you can actually do something with it. God is light. You need to be in his word. You need to read his word. We need to apply his word to our lives. We need to look at it as light. And when we see something that doesn't line up with the light, when the light exposes something, we need to change. I'm in the middle of actually working on this basement. I researched the right kind of soap that I need to use on basement walls and wood. I'm cleaning it out. I pulled all the insulation out of the ceiling and I'm getting down to where all the dirt and the mold and the, and the dust remain. And I'm going to give it a good cleaning. And I can assure you this, that while I'm in that room working, there's going to be lights on so that I can see the problem. Indeed, I can be discouraged by these problems. I could be so discouraged that I go in that room and just shut the door and say, just pretend that room doesn't exist. It'd be a whole lot easier to just ignore 
or maybe just leave those dim lights on. If I left the dim lights on, I think that I could go in there and work and think that I'm in a clean environment. It's only the bright lights that make a problem. It's only those Christians who read the Bible that cause trouble, I guess, in culture. It's only those who know the only God that exists and talks about Him and talks about the absolutes in God's Word. It's those people that cause all the pain in life. If everybody could just live in darkness, we'd all be the same. We wouldn't, we wouldn't notice how bad it is. We wouldn't see the evils around us. Therefore, we could all be victims. We could say, I, I don't feel well, but not know why, because there's no light on the subject. We could be people who pretend that we have no choices in the matters of life and death. That sounds silly to me. Yet it is something that happens on a regular basis. Thanks for joining me tonight. This is Dave Wager for Nighttime and the Relate365.com team. A division of Silver Birch Ranch. That'll work. Good night.